Imagine your kids recently returned to school after summer break. One morning, you grab the paper as you pour yourself a cup of coffee. Because, yes, in my world, I still sometimes read a handheld newspaper, although I don't drink coffee. And the headline reads something like this. One teacher murdered, three suspended, and the principal behind bars. Back to school has an entirely new meaning. Would you send your kids back to school? Would you send them back to that particular school? Many parents in Upper Marion School District faced that question in 1979 after learning of the murder of Susan Reinert, an English teacher at the high school who was found murdered earlier that summer. Her two young children who'd been with her the night before she was found had vanished. Rumors circulated throughout the hallways, but it wasn't only the students who whispered. It was the teachers. The faculty lounge was rife with gossip, and yet it wasn't gossip. The rumors about Principal Jay Smith and his unusual pornography collection were true. His arrest for robbing a local department store also turned out to be true. And what about William Bradfield, an English teacher with Upper Marion High School for 15 years, who told anyone who wanted to listen, and even those who didn't, his friend and fellow teacher Susan Reinert was in danger. From what or whom was she in danger? Principal Smith, whom Bradfield believed had a lust for more than pornography. He had a lust for murder. The Philadelphia Press called this case the Mainline Murders. Mention that phrase in Upper Marion Township today, and some people might look away, as if they're embarrassed the community is remembered for these crimes, as if these bucolic suburban Philadelphia communities should be exempt from despair. But you and I know better, don't we? We've visited these halls before, in 1991 when Caleb Fairley graduated from Upper Marion High School four years before he murdered Lisa and Devin Mandarak. This story takes more twists and turns than Route 23 driving from Upper Marion into Philadelphia. Yeah, that's something only a local would know, so that's why I've got a former local to help me share this story. On today's episode, my dear friend Margot D. joins me from the Book vs. Movie podcast, the Not Fade Away podcast, Best Neighbors podcast, and the Fit Bottom Girls podcast and blog. Yes, she is a wonder woman. Margot's shows are amazing. They're all in my list of favorites, and she is one of my most favorite people on the planet. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this twisted journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. I am so excited because a very dear friend of mine and a voice you've heard before on Twisted Philly is back. Everyone, please help me welcome Margot D. back to Twisted Philly. Hi, everyone. Margot, before we get into today's Twisted topic, why don't you take a little bit of time and let folks know about your shows and where they can find you? Thank you so much. So the other podcasts I work on are Book vs. Movie, The Best Neighbors Podcast, The Fifth on Girls Podcast and the Not Fade Away podcast. And you can find me, easiest thing to do is find me on social media is at Brooklyn Fitchick, and that's on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. That's where you'll find me, and that's where I post all the shows that I work on. And that's my blog, 
brooklynfitchick.com. And I know a lot of Twisted Philly listeners have been following Castle Rock, and they really enjoyed the recap episode we did a few weeks ago on book versus movie. So we'll have to keep them posted when the next recap is up after the series ends, at least for the season. Hopefully it'll come back. Oh, I, I'm enjoying this one so, so much. I think this is one of the best Stephen King properties I've seen in a long time. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. As you might remember, Margot originally hails from Pennsylvania. She grew up not far from where I live, down in Malvern. And she's also a true crime fan. She listens to a lot of great podcasts. She's always turning me on to podcasts that are new to me. Margot was on before talking about a true crime episode, and I've missed having her on Twisted Philly. So we thought it was time to get together and do another true crime episode together. And since this is back-to-school season... We picked a story that has to do with a murder centered around Upper Marion High School, which is the high school from which my child graduated. It's the high school in the community where I live, and it is a fucking mess. (laughs) Upper Marion High School? Well, the story is a mess. And yeah, I would say the high school is a mess, too. It's it's interesting. Margo and I will get into this in a little while, but there's a movie about this case. And when I watch the movie, I keep asking myself, Where did these people film? They filmed in Toronto because they sure as shit did not film at Upper Marion High School. Upper Marion High School looks like a prison. Like this thing, it is so depressing from the moment you walk in the door. I don't care how much you enjoy school. Just being in that building is oppressive. That is so funny because I went to East High School, which is in Westchester. And it's the same thing. Like it's like this, it's Fugit Middle School and it's attached to East High School. And it's the same thing. It's like a totally depressing looking place. It looks like a compound, like a prison compound. Well, they rebuilt the middle school and it's unbelievable. And the elementary schools. So all the other schools in the district are like showcases. And then you drive up to this old yellow cinder block building. And it's like, okay, am I going to have to talk to someone on the other side of the glass? Because that's what it looks like. (laughs) Oh, my God. Today, Margot and I are talking about the murder of Upper Marion High School teacher Susan Reinert. I'm going to give you a little bit of background. In 1979, Susan Reinert lived in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia, and she was an English teacher at Upper Marion High School. She'd been amicably divorced from her husband, Ken, for a few years, and her two children, Karen and Michael, lived with her. She was described as a quiet, shy woman. She had big brown eyes. And she wore enormous glasses. I mean, these glasses were pretty typical for the 70s. They were similar to what I was wearing in the 70s. When I went to the local public library to look up the yearbook from 1978, 1979, and I saw pictures of Susan, I actually thought she was quite pretty, even though that isn't how she was described. But you know how people can be. Right, right. They always describe the owlish looking glasses. Right, right. And that she's very mousy looking. On Friday night, June 22nd, Susan picked up her son, Michael, from a Cub Scout softball game in a town called Wynwood. It was about 10 minutes from where she lived. Her son was there with his father, and he apologized to his dad for leaving the game early because that was a night they'd planned to spend together. But his mom, Susan, had a speaking engagement the next day in Allentown with a group called Parents Without Partners. And she decided to take both her kids, Karen and Michael, with her on that trip. One of Susan's neighbors saw her and the kids pack up her Plymouth Horizon. God, you remember those cars? Oh, yes, I do. Yeah, and hers was like this orangey red color. But her neighbors saw them packing up the hatchback and leave. And she figured they were probably heading out on vacation. It was summer break from school. That was the last time anyone saw Susan, Michael, or Karen Reinert alive. On Monday morning, June 25th, 1979, 
Susan's battered, naked body was found in the hatchback of her car in a parking lot of the Host Inn, which was a hotel just outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And Harrisburg's about an hour and a half west of Philly. She'd been chained. She was covered with bruises. And her kids were nowhere to be found. The police found her body at about 5.30 in the morning that Monday after an anonymous tip was called into Pennsylvania State Police. And Dauphin County, which is the county where her body was found, the coroner there ruled her death a homicide, which obviously she was murdered. But he said it was homicide by strangulation. Based on the condition of her body, he determined that she'd been killed before she was placed in the car. So Margo and I are going to be talking about Susan's life and her death and how the hell did she wind up in this situation? Because it is completely bizarre. This is one of the most bizarre stories ever. We're talking about the case in real life. And if you look this stuff and realize you're going to shake your head and say, what? When you go through all the facts of it, then it became a book by Joseph Wambaugh, which is called Echoes in the Darkness. And then 1987, it was a TV movie. It was a two night kind of thing, you know, two hours, one night, two hours, the next night. And I remember back in the day in 87, watching it with my mom. And we both kept turning to each other and goes, this is bizarre. Like, are these people real? This is a real true story, you guys. And you're just not going to believe the details. It has so many twists and turns. And interestingly enough, even though I grew up in this area, I had never heard of this case. I heard of this case after my, well, my daughter was in 10th grade. So this is going back a couple of years and she was being bullied and I was constantly fighting with the school and I eventually got the police involved and I was ranting and bitching about the principal. And she turns around and she says, well, what do you expect at a school where a principal murdered a teacher? And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) And it was this. And she's like, yeah, mom, echoes in the darkness. What do you mean you don't know about this? Well, it took my kid telling me about this. Once people learned about Susan's death, they were completely shocked. One of her fellow Upper Marion English teachers, a man by the name of Jim Burns, had said, what's so horrifying about this is there is nothing in her background that would lead anyone to expect this kind of thing to happen to Susan. She was a quiet person. She was a devoted person. She lived a very simple life. Her whole life revolved around her children and her work. Susan was clearly not the kind of person that you might consider someone who lived an at-risk lifestyle. She wasn't driving into North Philadelphia to get drugs. She wasn't dating a score of different men. She lived a very simple, quiet life. So there was a huge shock over how she was, not just the fact that she was murdered, but how she was murdered and, and how her body was discovered. That along with her children, and they never found the kids' bodies. And to this day, nobody knows where they are, right. where they're buried. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's shocking, and it's just so awful. So for close to 40 years, there has been absolutely no sign of Michael and Karen. They were 10 and almost 12 when they disappeared. Susan joined the staff at Upper Marion High School in 1971. Very quickly, she became a favorite among her students and her peers, When I read what a lot of her students had to say about her, it makes me think of some of my most favorite teachers. And I think this is probably the kind of teacher, Margo, that you would have really appreciated, too. She didn't lecture her students. She encouraged healthy classroom discussions where other teachers would sort of speak at their students. She would question them and give them the opportunity to question her and make them think a little bit to absorb information rather than just pushing education on them. It's too bad, like, over the years, like, this part of her isn't discussed as much, you know? She, like, when, when somebody is murdered, they become a victim, and then it becomes all about the perpetrators. And then, like you said, you learn about her teaching style, and, you know, people kind of reduced her also just to her appearance. Like, oh, she's the lady with the big glasses, 
you know, she was shy and divorced and that's all she was. And then you're talking about her now and she sounds like she would have been an amazing teacher. And I would have loved to have taken her classes. I think she was. And one of the other things that I found really interesting about her as a teacher, this in particular reminds me of a teacher that that still to this day means so much to me. She was a huge film buff and she created a class at Upper Marion for students to learn about cinema. So, you know, sometimes you find that one English teacher who's a little bit quirky and they're so creative and they find such unique, engaging ways to get people excited about curriculum. That's what she seems like to me. You're right. There's so much out there about this case that focuses so much on her murderers and her murder. I had to go hunting to find more. What was really troubling is when I went to the library where I saw pictures of Susan, it wasn't in the 1979 yearbook. They have every single Upper Marion yearbook from every year that school has been in operation, except the class of 79. Why is that? Well, so I went to the desk and I said, hey, there's there's one yearbook I can't find. It's from the class of 79. And she's like, well, then if we don't have it, it just isn't there. Okay, but that's strange Ah. because you have yearbooks back, I don't know, to the 50s and 60s. And you have last year's yearbook. Why would you not have that one year? I think it's because of Susan's death. It's sad to me because when you look at the yearbook from the following year, there's a huge page dedicated to the new principal. And it talks about how he really helped the school and the students through a very difficult time. They didn't say what that difficult time was, but you can assume it was the murder of their teacher and then finding out who was involved in her murder. What an opportunity for the school to have done something like a tribute to this woman, right? I mean, she was a beloved teacher who'd been there for eight years, and it was like they just tried to erase her. That You know, that's the time, too. We, we didn't have, like, a true crime kind of culture then. You know, when something like this happened, they try to sweep it under the rug. You know, they don't, don't talk about it. It's too dark, you know? And so when you mentioned her kids, when she wasn't teaching, she, she spent damn near every bit of her free time with Karen and Michael. She was at their after-school activities. Karen was in gymnastics. Michael played softball with the Cub Scouts. He played baseball. Her friends said that she focused so much on others, especially her children, that she really seemed like the perfect example of a lot of women who get lost caring for others, and they let themselves take a real back seat. We were talking about parents without partners, like like a, such a 70s. 80s kind of a reference you know like people the the divorce was starting to rise in this country like more and more people were getting divorced and was that whole single parent lifestyle and home and uh, what it means to raise a kid on your own that was just starting to really kind of come to the uh, forefront in the 70s it was she'd had a tough year she'd lost her mother in the fall and she came into some inheritance from her mother and she'd been thinking about either taking a sabbatical or entering into a program. It was like a teacher exchange program similar to a student exchange program where she would go to Europe for a few months and teach and take her kids with her. Her unexpected death meant that obviously that adventure never happened for her. Yeah. So about two months after her death, late in the summer, the Pennsylvania State Police, who'd been investigating her murder and kept coming up completely empty, they requested the aid of the FBI. So one, kudos to them, because a lot of times you'll see law enforcement agencies that are just so territorial that they don't want the FBI or a larger group of, of law enforcement officials getting involved, but they really sought out the support of the FBI. And and one of the reasons it was easy to get them involved is because with Karen and Michael missing, their disappearance was considered a kidnapping. And so that makes it a federal crime, which the FBI should be investigating anyway. Yeah. So once the FBI got involved, they uncovered something very surprising. 
Susan Reinert had recently taken an insurance policy out before her death for a million dollars in death benefits. That's close to 40 years ago. She's taking out a million dollar policy and she changed the beneficiary in her will shortly before her death. The beneficiary was fellow Upper Marion English teacher William Bradfield. So at the time, Bradfield was spending his summer in Santa Fe, New Mexico, taking classes. So the police had to travel quite a bit back and forth to question him about his relationship. According to Susan, he was her future husband. That's how she identified him in her will. Yeah, she didn't. And she didn't take put her kids on there. It was all him. Right. Bradfield joined the Upper Marion teaching staff in 1963, almost a decade before Susan. Susan Reinert wasn't the first colleague at Upper Marion that Bill dated. Soon after joining Upper Marion staff, he started dating a woman named Sue Meyer, who in appearance looked a lot like Susan Reinert. She described Bill as the most charismatic man at Upper Marion. And so I'm thinking either there were some pretty slim pickings there at Upper Marion (laughs) or she was just really a sucker because I don't see it at all. And I'm not just talking about his looks. Margo, you probably saw this in the movie and in the book, but Sue and Bill had spent a number of months in Europe. Between 1972 and 1973, Sue Meyer went to Europe with Bill Bradfield while he was on sabbatical. While she was traveling with him, even though she had suspected that there might be some infidelity, it was pretty much a proven fact at that point. She discovered he had multiple relationships with other women. They'd been sending him letters along their destinations throughout Europe. He was a complete Lothario. He's a player. And and if you look at this guy, you would never assume this of him. I, I don't want to look shame somebody, but he's not exactly Brad Pitt. Let's just put that out there. And he had with a relationship with Sue Meyer for over a decade and stringing her along the whole time. I mean, the, this, this woman like hooked up with him when she was like 23, maybe. And she just stuck with him. She said he had like 16 affairs that she knew about. He was sleeping with former students of his. And he had like a honey, basically, like in Albuquerque, he had somebody at Harvard, he had somebody in Los Angeles, he had somebody in England, like he was constantly wooing women. But at the same time, he also was kind of wooing men, not sexually, but he had a couple of intense male friendships, too, that were kind of super intense, that were also on staff at the high school. It's interesting, there was there was something that Peter Coyote said in the film that he had he admitted that he had this need for affection. He had a need for affection from many, many people. And, and to your point, not just women, but men as well. One of the strange things was, at least with his relationship with Sue, it wasn't as physical a relationship as you might expect for somebody who'd been with a man for a decade. No, he was not what society would typically consider handsome. Like he was no leading man. He walked around in in wrinkled clothes. He had this thick, unruly beard that looked like if you got up close to it, it might smell. And you guys know I love beards, but he just looked dirty. But he was smart and he was well-read and well-traveled and well-educated. And I think he was probably the sort of guy that you could listen to for hours over a bottle of wine while he regaled you with poetry. And, you know, women were just obsessed with him. Everybody was. And then he strangely, like, he was obsessed with a couple of things. One of them was Ezra Pound, which if you can read that crap, you're a smarter person than I am. I could never understand that stuff. He was really into that. And he was also really into Catholicism. And he really venerated uh, virginity. That's another thing. Like, people who didn't need sex or people who were celibate, he really thought that was, like, the highest plane to be, which is odd. So, like, the teachers that he was really good friends with tend to be people who were socially awkward 
that didn't have a lot of romantic partners or there that one the person Vitalis how do you say his name Vladis yes. Vince Vladis he wanted to yeah he wanted to be in the seminary for a while and then all they all went to church he didn't I mean you would think like he didn't have sex very often but then he had a lot of relationship romantic relationships so like did he just like it just to a certain level and then didn't want it to cross over into sex so that's why he had so many I don't know. It's just the pathology is very strange. Yeah, they were deeply intense connections that he had with everybody. You know, when you talk about people who are sociopaths, the psychopathy of somebody who's a sociopath, it's, you know, they're unable to make those deep connections. And he's quite the opposite. Unless, and I think this might be partially true, unless to some extent, so much of it was just, it was completely insincere. Yeah, well, that was one of the the lines in the movie. And it was also in the book about her daughter, Karen. And she said, like, one time, Bill, he he came over and she made him pancakes for breakfast. And he was like, oh, my God, these are the best ever. And then she said right away, her brother offered to make him a sandwich. He goes, OK. And he made him a bologna sandwich. He goes, oh, my God, that's the best bologna sandwich ever. And she's like, well, who likes pancakes and bologna sandwiches? Like, and who would want them right away with each other? And she just said, I don't think he's a very truthful person. Yeah. I he, think he's playing up to people. Yeah. Very disingenuous. Disingenuous. Susan was murdered in in that summer. In the fall, when school was back in session, there was a headline in the Philadelphia Inquirer that just really caught me from all my research because it, it read, one teacher has been slain, three have been suspended from teaching duties, the former principal is in jail, back to school has a new meaning. It's like, <laughs> welcome to Upper Marion. You already mentioned one of them, and we've talked about the other two. The three teachers who were suspended prior to the start of that school year, they were suspended because they were mentioned in connection with the death of Susan Reinert. They were not arrested. They were not people of interest, but they were being mentioned in the press and they were being questioned by the police. And so obviously the first one was William Bradfield, especially once the police discovered that Susan Reinert had taken out a million dollar life insurance policy with him as the beneficiary. His girlfriend, Sue Myers, was also bended. And then Vincent Villatis, who we mentioned, who had that intensely deep, platonic, almost, you know, familial, brotherly relationship with Bradfield. He was also suspended. The superintendent of Upper Marion School District couldn't fire these teachers. Legally, he couldn't take any action. But because the parents of the students were so out of their minds, he moved them to non-teaching roles. So they stayed on staff, but they weren't around students. So they were, I think they were assigned curriculum development type roles. Mm -hmm. And the principal that was in jail, who was referenced in that headline, well, that was a man named J.C. Smith. Ooh, this is a person to talk about. He was an officer in the Army Reserve. While he may not have worn his uniform every day, as Robert Loggia does in the movie. <laughs> he did wear it on his very first day of school. Ida Micucci, who was his assistant, talked so much about how bizarre it was to work with this man. He would come into school, he would lock the door of his office, and you'd probably not see him the entire day. So nobody knew what the fuck he did, even though he was the principal of the school. And he also liked to talk on the... the um what am I thinking of? The loud system when you're talking, yes, when you're doing over, announcements? He took over the PA system of the, the school. The PA system. Thank you. He would do that. And they would say the kids loved it because he loved to hear his own voice. He would just talk and talk and talk. And sometimes they would miss a whole period of class because they had to sit there and listen to this windbag, just talk and talk and talk. And then they could go about their school day. But yeah, it was, it was batshit crazy. They called him the Prince of Darkness. I remember growing up when I was in high school, there were a couple of people like in the principal and, and disciplinary staff that we liked and we didn't like. And sometimes we had some 
you know, nicknames for them. But the Prince of Darkness, that's pretty fucking harsh. He was apparently, though, he was really into uh, all kinds of weird sexual stuff. He had all these kinds of photos in his pornography collection. He had uh, chains in his, uh, his basement, was it? He was into bondage. He was into animal stuff. He was like into black magic, like found all of that really interesting. And that was like, and if you look at this guy, by the way, you would never assume that either. He no. just looks like, well, he, he just doesn't look like that at all. He looks like a total square. But he, it's, this guy tur- had a very, very dark personal life. And he was married to someone who's from Westchester, by the way, for a very long time. But apparently she didn't know about this, about him. She, she knew was- there was something up with him, but not that much. She was completely oblivious to what he did in his secret life. So much of what you're mentioning, Margot, came up in the teacher's lounge while he was there. The gossip about him was the pornography that you mentioned. They talked about him having swingers parties. He'd been accused of criminal activity, but nothing had been proven. And then the weird thing was he used to bring his trash to the high school. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, he would throw in his trash and the, the trash compactor there. I can vouch for the fact he didn't live too far from where I live now. There is trash pickup in this community. (laughs) He did not need to bring his trash bags to the school. A lot of people thought this was vicious gossip. He was strange. He was eccentric. But most of it was true. Yeah. Yeah. Principal Smith was arrested at a shopping center. It's called Gateway Shopping Center. It's about 10 minutes from where I live, and it's a place where I shop. And he he was stopped at the shopping center because of suspicious activity. His car was speeding. It pulled into the shopping center. It was in the middle of the night. It's not a time when anybody's going to be parking in a shopping center unless you're up to something you shouldn't be up to. When the cops pulled him over, he got out of the car. The police officer followed him to the car and saw that he had a gun. They handcuffed him. They searched his car. And in his car was found, this is insane, multiple guns a mask, a hood, tranquilizers, and syringes. So he was arrested on suspicion of intent to commit burglary. But he gave the police so many excuses. First, he said he was being harassed because people didn't like him in Upper Marion and that all this paraphernalia was for self-defense. Please tell me how a tranquilizer is for <laughs> self-defense, right? Then he said it wasn't his car. But then, obviously, with the registration, it was his car. So he said, "Okay, well, it's my car, but my son-in-law, Eddie Hunsberger, recently used it. And he and my daughter are drug addicts and the syringes must be theirs. He had a homemade silencer, for God's sake. What they found in the trunk of his car was a homemade kill kit. It's it's insane. And I forgot to mention, like, the teachers were so they hated meeting with him because he was so weird and creepy and he would make up words you know, trying to throw them off. But one of my favorite descriptions from the book about him is that he looked like an obscene phone call. Like he just looked like a person that was messed up, like deep down. Yeah, he was creepy. Yes, creepy as shit. They arrested him on suspicion of armed robbery. Well, it turned out he'd actually committed armed robbery. He robbed the local Sears department store. When he was stopped, he was fleeing the scene of an attempted robbery of another Sears that was like 10 minutes down the road. He gets arrested and the police search his house. And I think this is when everything started to come to light for his wife, that poor woman who was completely in the dark. They found the most bizarre, nefarious collection of oddities. There were jars of nitric acid in his basement. More guns than you could imagine. I mean, shit, they found four guns in the trunk the night he was arrested. 
they found the huge pornography collection, which Margot mentioned. And, you know, while in general, I'm not against pornography, this was bestiality. That's what he was into. They also found thousands of dollars worth of copy equipment in his home. And it was copiers that belonged to Upper Marion School <laughs> District. This is the man who was put in charge of what at the time was considered one of the most prominent schools in the state. It's insane. It's insane to even think about. While he was in jail, Bill Bradfield was basically pulling the wool over Susan Reinert's eyes. He, on the surface, it seemed like he treated her kindly, although he wasn't honest with her because, remember, he had the live-in girlfriend who was a fellow teacher from Upper Marion. He repeatedly told Susan they had to keep their relationship on the down low. You know, she was a divorcee with two children. And although divorce was certainly becoming more commonplace, I think as a, as a single woman, a single mother, he convinced her that keeping their relationship quiet would be better for her reputation. Right. And so while he fed that line to Susan Reinert, Sue Meyer, his live-in girlfriend, was being told, oh, I can't stand Susan Reinert. I don't want anything to do with her. She's crazy. She's obsessed with me. I'm just mentoring her as a fellow teacher. That's not even a role I want to fulfill. There's nothing between us. Now, and he said that to Vince as well. Right. So he had he had his girlfriend and his best friend convinced that anything between him and Susan was completely unrequited love on her part and that she was literally obsessed with him. He also, which is what really made me sick, he also spread vicious lies about her. He said that she was a drug addict. He said that she went to sex parties. He said that this association she was in, this Parents Without Partners, was a place where she would go to meet single men and have multiple sex partners on different nights. None of that was true. Yeah, he's trying to ruin her. And also there's Chris Pappas as another person that was in his inner circle. And he was a, like a substitute teacher. And he, but he was also a person that he kept very close to him. And also the same thing. Oh, Susan Reiner, she's crazy. Gaslighting, you know, basically. Oh, she's, she's crazy. She just has a crush on me. I feel sorry for her. I lend her money because she can't manage money. You know, she doesn't know what she's doing. She's completely in over her head. It was this very much of talking down to her. And in the meantime, he's having a relationship with her, but he's telling her, don't tell anybody about it. And then she is just so, I don't know, insecure. Or maybe she really loved him, but she goes along with it, which is really tragic. It is. And I think part of it was, you know, it's not like her marriage with her, her ex-husband, Ken, was horrible. I mean, she, you know, there weren't issues of abuse or anything like that, but she she wasn't in love with him anymore. So I, I think that Bradfield, just the way he was so well-educated and well-spoken and interesting and all of these things, I think he was exciting to her and very different than the previous relationship that she'd had. Maybe she felt like she wouldn't ever be able to get married again. This man tells her, we're going to get married. We're going to have a future together. I think she was just so excited about that possibility. I mean, for God's sake, she brought him around her kids. She brought him around her kids and she uh, and she lent him money. And the, he made it seem like he was lending her money, but that's not true. He was borrowing money from her. And she was getting money anywhere she could to take care of him. And they never mention this in the movie, but in the book you find out that he and Sue Meyer and another person, they had an art supply store. They had this retail operation. So they had a store and they were also teachers and the store wasn't doing well. And I think one point they said in the book, like uh, at one point they made 85 cents in one day. Like, it was just crazy. And so he had all these mounting debts. It's funny to think, like, he has all these debts, and then at the same time, he's blaming Susan for not being good with money. 
And so then Susan, um, Sue, excuse me, um, is going around. She starts trying to get money from all of her different bank accounts, and she tries to take out all of her money at once. And the bank is like, no, you're being swindled. Like she said, no, you need to give me cash. I need $15,000 in cash today. And they're like, no, we can wire money. We can do this for you. She just was completely suckered into whatever. He must have had the golden tongue. Like he could just say things to people and they believed it because um, these are all adults believed him. There's yes. like four or five adults that completely believe. You know, he, we also forgot to mention, like he was claiming that Jay Smith was planning with a mob, was had ties to the mob and was going to get Susan killed. Yes. And he told these over and over again to these people. And nobody went up to, to Susan and said, Girl, you're in danger. I like, know, get right? a, you know, hide out. No one went to the police. No one went to the FBI. They didn't go to the state police. Like at the same time, he's getting money from this woman. He's telling these other people that she's going to be killed at every moment. So every like the, every time they're around him, he's like, we need to pray for her because she could get killed today. I mean, it's bizarre. And the crazy thing is all of that started coming out in the teacher's lounge after her death. When everybody went back to school, the teachers talked about not just the few that were in his inner circle, Sue and and Vince and Chris, but so much of the staff talked about the fact that he, Bill Bradfield, was afraid that Jay Smith was going to kill Susan Reiner. He said that Smith was obsessed with her. Susan had no interest in him. How is it that he told all of these people and not one of them did a damn thing? They didn't talk to anyone. They didn't warn her. They did. Like we said, they didn't go to the FBI. They didn't go to the state police. Like, you look just to say, look, this may sound crazy, but this is what I'm being told. And I'm worried because she's a single, you know, she's a single mom with two young kids. You know, I don't know if she has any protection at her home. I'm worried about her. Can you just look into it? It's that horrible bystander syndrome. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. These grown adults didn't do anything. So a lot of this talk started to slip out. And after her death is when people started going to the police and saying, hey, listen, a couple months ago, Bill Bradfield said this or people were talking about this in the teacher's lounge. One of the rumors, they weren't just about Jay Smith and and everything that Bill said that he was going to do to Susan. One of the rumors was that Bill planned to kill her for insurance money. If you heard that rumor, I mean, it's bad enough he's telling people he thinks somebody else is going to kill her. But now people heard stories that he said he himself was going to do it to get the money. The Pennsylvania State Police felt pretty certain Bradfield was involved in her murder. Either he committed it or he conspired to commit it. But they didn't have enough evidence to link him to the murder. What they did was for it took them about two years and they were able to charge him with theft by deceit. And this is what Margo was talking about with with the money that Sue Reiner gave him in the book. I think it said fifteen thousand dollars. In some of the reports I read in the Philadelphia Inquirer, they said twenty five thousand dollars. Either way, it was a lot of money. And a good bit of it came from what she inherited from her mother. Bradfield convinced her to take money and give it to them for their future. He told her, women don't manage their money well. Let me hold it for you. And this will be for our wedding. I'll invest this and we'll be able to get money to buy a house together instead of, you know, me moving into your house with the kids in Ardmore. Then he gave the money to his freaking girlfriend, Sue Meyer, who stashed it. Yes, yes. And Sue Meyer would get like, she said for her birthday, he gave her four $100 bills. And this is like 1978 people. That's a lot of money to just like hand over to another person. And this is a broke ass teacher. We know teachers don't make a lot of money. Right. And their store was losing. That's what it makes me crazy. It's like they, she knows the receipts. The store wasn't doing well that they owned. Like, where did he get this money? It took four years. So two years after the murder, the police got Bill Bradfield in jail for theft by deceit. 
And then two years later, they were able to charge him with Susan's murder. But before that, while he was in jail for the theft by deceit, just a couple days before his trial was supposed to start, he filed a lawsuit to claim Susan Reinert's inheritance. (laughs) Ball the size of her spells. (laughs) Oh, my God. To claim the million dollars while he was in jail. Like, how fucking stupid are you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Eventually, over the period of four years between Susan's death and after the two years that Bradfield had spent in jail, the police were able to uncover physical evidence that linked Bradfield to at least orchestrating Susan's murder, but not necessarily committing the murder. The physical evidence linked them to Jay Smith. No big shock there. The man was a fucking psycho. (laughs) Something else that we forgot to mention, and this was something that Bradfield talked to other people about as well. Jay Smith, we mentioned his daughter and son-in-law when he was arrested under suspicion of armed robbery, and he tried to say it wasn't his car. The car was used by his his son-in-law and his daughter. They disappeared in 1978. Right. They were never found. He said they went to California, that they were, they were drug addicts and they were just going to go off to California. And his wife didn't believe it, and, and the parents of his son-in-law really didn't believe that at all. Uh, that they would never hear from him again. but And they've never been found. They've never been found. Susan's kids have never been found. And I, you know, I, I wonder what was in those trash bags that he was constantly bringing to school. Oh, God. I know, right? What, what a creepy thought. Jay Smith was charged with Susan Reinert's murder in 1985. It was literally six years to the day that she was murdered when he was charged. Like Bill Bradfield, Jay Smith was also in jail when he was charged with Susan's murder. He was in jail doing time for that armed robbery of the Sears store. He was found guilty and sentenced to death in 1986. He spent six years on death row, and he submitted motion after motion after motion in an attempt to get his conviction overturned, and it was. His conviction was overturned based on what his lawyers said was prosecutorial misconduct. Here's what happened, and this is where Joseph Wambach kind of enters the picture. When the investigation was happening in the mid-80s, Susan's ex-husband, Ken, had sent articles and information, everything he could get his hands on, to a true crime author named Joseph Wambach. Now, he was a former Los Angeles police officer who turned true crime novelist. He's actually written a number of very successful books, and Mm -hmm. he wrote a book about Susan Reinert's murder. Margo mentioned it at the top of the episode. It's called... Echoes in the Darkness, and then a TV movie was made from it. The problem is, Wamba talks to Susan's ex-husband. After he looks through all the information that Ken Reinert sent to him, he believes that there's enough for a book. He offers Ken Reinert $50,000 for something called a depiction waiver. And what that is, is it means if Wamba writes a book and Ken doesn't like what he has to say about him, Ken can't sue Wamba as the author. But her ex-husband died before they ever had the chance to finalize the deal. And here's Joseph Wamba with all this information about Susan's case. One of the investigators in Susan Reinert's murder investigation was a man named Jack Holtz, and he'd worked with Wamba in the past. Holtz was the lead investigator for the state, and he found the letter that Wamba had sent to Ken Reinert that said, I'll pay you $50,000 if you sign the depiction waiver. None of this was declared in court. Wamba was an ex-cop, but he had nothing to do with this investigation other than somebody after the fact writing a story based on public information, right? Newspaper Mm -hmm. articles, any kind of public files. But the state said that he was 
acting as an investigator at the time that all of this information was given to him. So even though he wasn't an actual investigator in Susan's case, because he conducted himself as an investigator, they felt that that contributed to prosecutorial misconduct. So the state Supreme Court overturned Smith's conviction in 1992. Besides everything we already mentioned, the state Supreme Court ruled that the original judge erred by allowing what they called hearsay testimony. All of those teachers that we mentioned who testified that they heard William Bradfield talk about Jay Smith wanting to murder Susan. All of that was thrown out as hearsay. They also said there was evidence from the autopsy that the state Supreme Court felt more significantly implicated William Bradfield. So all of that means that Smith's conviction was overturned and he was out of jail. The DA didn't go after him and do a new trial because he couldn't. The state Supreme Court said a new trial would be double jeopardy, even though he wasn't found not guilty. Right. They felt the prosecutorial misconduct was so egregious. There was absolutely no reason to try this case against Jay Smith a second time. Yeah, they were under a lot of pressure to solve the case. And, uh, you know, sometimes these things happen when they when that happens. So I, you know, explain that to me again. Sorry. So Wambaugh gave the money to the ex-husband or he said it to or to Jack Holtz. Initially, he had offered $50,000 to Ken Reinert. When Jack Holtz was investigating the murder, he found, of course, one of the things he looked into was her ex-husband and he found the letter between Wamba and Ken Reiner. So then Holtz said, I'll give you everything I have and I'll sign a depiction waiver. Okay, so he did take money. He did. Yes, okay. I'm sorry. He did. Yes, he okay, did take the money. I read that someplace. And by the way, he's played by Gary Cole in the movie. This week, Margo and I watched the <laughs> TV movie of Echoes in the Darkness. And by the way, the title comes from an Ezra Pound poem. I read the book. Margot read the book. You want to talk about Crazy Town. The electric chair can be the sociopath's greatest triumph. These are the words of Joseph Wambaugh. For 14 years, Joseph Wambaugh was a cop in the Los Angeles Police Department. He left the force to become the celebrated author of The Onion Field, The Choir Boys, The Blue Knight. Joseph Wambaugh thought he had seen it all, but nothing in fact or fiction prepared him for the gothic evil of Echoes in the Darkness. At approximately 7 p.m., a Plymouth hatchback pulled into the parking lot of the host motel just outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. The secret it contained would begin the most massive police investigation in the history of American law enforcement. The case became known as the Mainline Murders. The first man to emerge at the center of a web of murder and perversion was William Bradfield, a teacher of English, Latin, and Greek at the prestigious Upper Marion High School. He was beloved by his students and highly respected by the academic community. He charmed and seduced women of every age. One of them was Susan Reinhardt, mother of Michael, age 10, and Karen, age 11. Bradfield's accomplice is Dr. J.C. Smith, the distinguished principal of Upper Marion High School, a colonel in the U.S. Army, and the mastermind of the mainline murders. He is called the Prince of Darkness. He is a connoisseur of pornography, bestiality, and drugs. They know he committed the brutal murders of Susan Reinhardt and her two children. 
full extent of his evil is still a mystery. Now, the actor Peter Coyote is William Bradfield. Robert Loggia is Dr. J.C. Smith. Stockard Channing is Susan Reinert. And Treat Williams is Rick Gita, the prosecutor who sent William Bradfield to prison for three life terms. And Dr. J.C. Smith to the electric chair. Prepare yourself for what you will see. A gothic tale of the monsters who walk among us. A story unspeakably horrifying and bizarre because every detail is true. Echoes in the Darkness. Based on the shocking bestseller by Joseph Wambaugh. Echoes in the Darkness. Money. Sex. Madness. The movie is available on YouTube in its entirety. And I said to Margot, it looks like somebody filmed this off their television. <laughs> because the, qu- the quality is terrible. Oh, it's so bad. And there's there's a trailer. There's actually two trailers for the movie, which are beautiful, crisp and clean, although ridiculous. The full length version of the movie, girl, we suffered a little bit for this episode <laughs> to watch that. Well, so, let's, so we should just give you guys some context. So what if you you find that version, it's about four and a half hours. Because once again, this was a two night kind of thing. So it was it was somebody recorded it off their VCR 1987 in Los Angeles on KCBS was CBS TV movie. And when you watch the first half of this, this, uh, this TV movie, you will see commercials from 1987, like in real time, what aired that night. It's like a time capsule. And it's bananas. Like, that's the first I think that night. was the best part. I that was the best too. part. Yeah. Well, the first <laughs> half of the movie is really great also just because the first part of the story is so crazy. Like, you just can't believe what you're watching. And Peter Coyote is a thousand times more handsome. Everybody's better looking than the person that they're playing. Because it's, you know, it's, it's Hollywood, it's television. It's, 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 it's the commercials plus it's the story. The second half, maybe not so much. They don't have the commercials in the second half. And also it's a lot more just about the trials, which isn't as interesting, but it's bananas. The way Peter Coyote delivers so many of his lines, it's like he's doing Shakespeare you can, and everything is so very important. You, can, and, you kind of can see it. You could kind of see why people yeah. fell for it. He's so passionate. Like when he talks to people, his body is so close to them. Like he's basically he's like shoulder to shoulder when he's talking to you and every men, women, whatever. Like he will he'll embrace you very closely and say, I trust you more than anybody. That's why I'm telling you this information right now. So they're trying to get you the idea like this is why these people fell for him because they all felt like he was special. The number of times that the coyote playing Bill Bradfield said to someone, I need to take you into my deepest confidence. <laughs> I mean, it must have been like, I don't know, 47 times he must have said that. But that's what he said to everybody. So it's like if everything is that important, then really nothing is that important. But Exactly. He's telling so many people about his fears that Smith is going to kill Susan. And then he tells so many people about his fears that Smith has murdered his own daughter and son-in-law. There were a couple of times, especially where Vince had said, you know, should we go to the police? And Coyote said, Coyote playing Bradfield had said, you know, they're not going to believe me. I need to get into his good graces. I need to see what he's up to. I need to secure more evidence. And then when we have something plausible, then we'll go to the police. You know, I almost wonder if he was trying to. Now, yes, I believe 
regardless of whether or not his conviction was overturned, I absolutely believe crazy, twisted Jay Smith committed that murder of Susan Reinert. And yes. her kids are stashed somewhere. Nobody will ever find them. Yeah. If you personally, as, as Bill Bradfield, really thinks that this man is capable of this, the fact that he kept telling so many people, I almost feel like he tried to set him up. Even though I believe he did it, it felt like he spent months just setting the stage to convince somebody, to convince people that it was all Smith. Yes, absolutely. Because he wants that money, you know. And these are people that were teaching children. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Public servants. There you go, everybody. You can suffer through the poor quality. The movie, it is a hell of a ride. I'll tell you that. And Stockard Channing is wonderful. I mean, she's just a wonderful actress in everything that she does. Robert Loggia as Jay Smith is definitely more charismatic than the real man was. But, you know, he's got that got a little bit of creep going on, which is which is pretty good. There's so many familiar faces. Treat Williams, who I think is just so freaking handsome. Me too. The, di the district attorney. Oh, my God. He's so handsome. He's dreamy. Yeah, he's sexy. <laughs> he's very sexy. And then Peter Boyle as so Sergeant Joe Van Nort. He plays a very angry oh, yeah. sergeant like, hey. I don't want you guys here. You know, it's a bit of an over-the-top performance, but it totally works. And once again, Gary Cole as Jack Holtz. He's an old, like, you know, TV movie guy from the 80s. And uh, Cindy Pickett as Sue Myers. Uh, it's got a really great cast. And uh, when, Boy, she was great. Oh, she's wonderful. She was great. She was bitter and insecure. And that, that fight scene between her and Sue in the hallway, I mean, she just clocked Stockard Channing. It was, it was crazy. It's, it's just bananas. And we should say Bill died. In William Bradford, he died in 1998, and they found a camera in his cell or in his uh, belongings and his effects. They found a photograph right. that was taped to his wall, and they wondered what the photograph. It looks like it was taken. It was outdoors. Is it a marker? And is it a marker for where Karen and Michael are buried? They don't know. They've never been able to find them. They they have this photo. They've never been able to find them. Oh, by the way, I found out. That night that the movie or first part of that night. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, go, go, go. these prisoners, oh. like, took over his cell, Bradford's cell, and said, where the hell are those kids? Like, they were ready to rip him to shreds. Like, that's how powerful these TV movies were in the 80s. Like, everybody watched them. And the next day, you were absolutely convinced that they were guilty. No, this movie got rave reviews by Every network, every critic, it was called one of the best of its kind when it came out. It was considered the best, like made from made for TV crime drama that had ever been released. Yes, it's up there with like fatal. And vision. they had to put right, right. Another yep. another Wamba, another yep. Wamba piece. They had to put Bradfield in solitary confinement after that because they the prisoners would not leave him alone. There were millions of people who saw it. You know, they had we had cable, but not like what we have nowadays. You know, it was like the major networks were a big deal. He died in 1998 in prison of a heart attack. Jay Smith died in 2009. He filed so many lawsuits against the Pennsylvania State Police and Joseph Wamba between the time his conviction was overturned and his death. He lost all of them. None of them went to court. None of them had any merit whatsoever. He even wrote his own book in an effort to clear his name. I... Wouldn't read that book if you paid. No, I was going to say, I have no way. No, yeah, I have no desire to see what this man has to say for himself. I absolutely believe in his guilt. The sad thing is, when you think about where her body was found, like, Margot, you know Pennsylvania. You know the the rolling hills of Pennsylvania. Outside of Harrisburg, and, and not even that far, but anywhere between here and Harrisburg, as you drive up the Pennsylvania Turnpike, it is nothing 
but miles and miles of woods and forests with farms dotted here and there. Those kids could have been dumped anywhere. Absolutely. And you could search for, you could search for a hundred years and not find them. Yeah, that's exactly true. And it's horrible because, you know, Ken Reiner died never knowing what happened to his children, never finding his children. There was one piece in the book that made me so sad that after Susan was found murdered and, and the kids were missing, Ken's wife went into the trash and dug out two cards that the kids had made for their dad. And, you know, not that like he was a shitty dad and they threw them out. But, you know, I literally just today, I took down birthday cards off the mantle. My birthday was a month ago. Right. Sometimes after a while, some people keep cards forever. Some people don't. But she pulled them out of the trash and they were handmade cards by each of each of the children. And they just talked about, you're such a wonderful dad. We love you so much. <laughs> and his wife got them and put them away to keep them for him because they had no idea if they were going to find the children and and they didn't. And as horrible as it is what happened to Susan, the fact that the kids were never found and, and the family, grandparents, nobody could ever even have a memorial for them. I mean, they could have a memorial, but you just don't know. I, I can't imagine that. They just have no feeling of not knowing. They have no idea what happened to them. They don't know if it was quick, it was painless or painful. They don't know if Susan saw it happen. Like, they just don't know what happened to these kids. And once again, they were like 10 and 11 years old. They were so young and they had so much ahead of them. And uh, good God, you know, let the kids go. You know, why, why, why take them with, you know, I guess no witnesses. Anybody that thought that photo might have something to do with an indication of where the kids were, it literally, like, it wasn't even a photo of a tree. It was a photo of woods, mm -hmm. and it's so dense. And, yeah, it did look like there was something. Some people have said this, This it looks like a statue or maybe something that resembles, like, a tiki statue. It just, there's, there's, a, there's something in the photo that clearly is not part of the foliage. And so there's been questions as to whether or not he kept that photo because it's how he indicated where the children were. Mm -hmm. But there is nothing in that picture that could give you any idea of where to start. It's because it's so close up. It's so close up. You couldn't even possibly be able to pinpoint that. And like you said, it's just all woods between where they are, Upper Marion and Harrisburg. You know, they could be anywhere. And then the, and decomposed yeah. by now. Right. It's been 40 yeah. years. I mean, almost. Yeah, 40 years. I can't imagine. Well, and the crazy thing is, so a number of my daughter's friends, their families are from Upper Marion. Like, we're not from this area. I, I moved here when, when I was pregnant, and then we stayed here because my daughter was in the district. There's a number of her friends whose families are originally from Upper Marion. Their parents graduated from UM. Her friends graduated with her. One of her best friends in particular, both her parents are like, oh, my God, we were there when this happened. Jay Smith is the name on our diploma. Oh, my God. I oh can't my imagine. Holy shit. Holy shit. shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you go to IMDb and they have that that part where you can leave reviews, you go to that and look at the reviews. Like half of them are people who were there at the time because, you know, it's a big school. Like a lot of people attended the yeah. school then like, oh, yeah. He gave those really long speeches over the, 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 over the PA system. Like, you know, Susan Reinhardt was a really good teacher. Bradfield was very popular. It was shocking when people found out about him. Like, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it didn't exist in a vacuum. Like, people were there. I've said this to you before. I think there is something wrong with Upper Marion. Yeah. Most of this town is built on remediated EPA sites. And I found that out because when we were house shopping back 18 years ago when I was pregnant, we almost bought a property in a different part of town. There was an offer on the table and we didn't think we were going to get the house. 
And then the buyers backed out and they had a they had a home inspection done. And so our agent said, hey, you can have access to the home inspection if you want it. Like, sure. okay, yeah, great. I'll take a look at it. Maybe we don't have to pay for one ourselves. There was nothing wrong with the property. One thing was there was a crack in the driveway. Okay, not major. There was no handrail on the banister in the basement. Again, not major. And I'm like, I don't understand. I don't understand why these people backed out. So we put our offer in. The offer was accepted. And one night I said to my mom, would you like to come up and see the house that we're buying? And she said, of course, she wanted to see it. So it wasn't my agent, but it was the seller's agent who brought us. And so we were in the backyard and the backyard backed up to the seller's agent said, yeah, and it's great because Renaissance is taking care of all the remediation. And I, I was like, I'm sorry, what? What? <laughs> what? So the next day I contacted the Environmental Protection Agency. There was an EPA site between the backyards of this development and the corporate center that was right behind it. And one of the chemicals that was in runoff water was benzene, <gasps> which was especially toxic to pregnant women and nursing mothers. So then I realized, oh, okay, the previous buyers used the home inspection to get out of the deal. They used the basically nothing that was wrong to get out of the deal because you can't back out for anything other than something in the home inspection. Like once you put your deposit in, you know, you're kind of right. stuck. In talking to the EPA, they sent me, like they gave me all this information to find on the website and so I mapped out all the remediated EPA sites because I'm like, okay, if we're going to live in King of Prussia, I, I want to live somewhere <laughs> where we're not sitting on an, an EPA dump site. When I say I think there's something wrong with the water, I am not kidding. I think there's something wrong in Upper Marion. It started with this, Caleb Fairley and the murder of Lisa and Devin Mandarak. He went to Upper Marion High School. He's from Upper Marion there's a horrible murder that took place just a few years ago in one of the high rises on Route 202 where a grandmother was murdered and the little baby was missing. <gasps> she was found, and I, I, I can't do this case because it's just too sad. She was found dead somewhere in the, the high rise. And it was somebody who, was, who had a grudge against the father. They planned on kidnapping the baby and holding her ransom for money. And the grandmother, God bless her, put up such a fucking fight trying to protect her grandbaby she wound up getting herself Jesus killed. Christ. There's, there's so many stories like this coming out of Upper Marion. And I know there's all kinds of crime in Philly. I mean, there's crime everywhere, right? But there's some sick, twisted shit right here in Upper you Marion. And I know the water is fucked. I just want to put that out there. Bottled water, Brita filters, do not drink, drink the tap out of water. Drink pitcher, not out of the tap water. And Dina, you should start a podcast about that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah, there's so much crazy. I think it's the woods. When you have a lot of woods, because in Jersey, there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens in the Barrens, the Pine yeah, Barrens yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. And in, uh, I lived in Santa Cruz for a while. Santa Cruz, California. It's up in the mountains. There's some crazy, it's in Northern California, crazy shit yeah. happens in the woods. It's all about the woods. That's fine. I'll yeah, live in the woods. I mean, we're surra- it, it seems pretty urban now, but we're, we're surrounded. My, my place backs up to woods. Yeah. Something, something's going on in there, and especially with the water in the woods. That's that, that combo is creating all the shit. All these EPA sites form sinkholes. Like the number of sinkholes we get here is ridiculous. I swear to God, one day the King of Prussia Mall is just going to get sucked. Oh in my the ground. God! Like the fucking Hellmouth and Buffy, <laughs> or the House and Poltergeist. It is. 
<laughs> right, right. It's just, yep, it's going to get sucked into oh. a portal because we are filled with There's sinkholes. There's an Indian burial ground and you put it here. <laughs> How could you? That's my favorite scene in Poltergeist. Like, let's explain everything. You only move the headstones. <laughs> let's explain everything in the last 30 seconds. <laughs> that was toby hooper (laughs) oh my god this was this was so good this was so so much fun i loved i I tell you i've seen this tv movie so many times and my neighbor next door we have a show called best neighbors podcast and aaron and i when we first became neighbors a little over 20 years ago this was a movie that's on i think like she took my mail in when i was on vacation or something and i went over to pick it up and we started talking i realized this was on the background i'm like you like echoes in the darkness it's like yeah, you like Echoes in the Darkness? And so it's one of those things that bonded <laughs> us. So when I told her I was doing the show today, she completely freaked out. Like, I, I, I know this TV movie very well, and I love this story. It's, I mean, it's crazy, and of course, it's, it's terribly sad about Michael and Karen and Susan, of course. Uh, but the, the, the twists and turns that it takes, it's such a weird journey. Before we go, let's give everybody another chance to uh, to hear about where can they find you? What are your other shows? Where can they find you on social media? Well, you can find me at brooklynfitchick.com. That's where I post all the shows I work on. And my other shows are it's Book Versus Movie, The Best Neighbors Podcast, Fit Bomb Girls Podcast, and the Not Fade Away Podcast. And seriously, on all social media, just follow me at brooklynfitchick and I will follow you back. And I have to say, I was a big fan of Book Versus Movie before Margot and I ever became friends. I was a listener before I got to know her. I'm so blessed that I've gotten to know you and call you friend because I think you're just one of the most badass women I've ever met. And your shows are great. Folks on Twisted Philly hear me talk about book versus movie a lot. And I listen to every episode. I listen and start reading books that I hadn't read before based on what I hear from you and Margot P. Best Neighbors podcast. Okay, I got to get my ass up to Brooklyn because you and Aaron have been so gracious and invited me to join you on an episode, and I haven't done it yet. Best Neighbors, I love it so much. If you want to listen to two amazing women, just kind of talk about the week, the week in pop culture, the week in news, the week in podcasts, the week in anything fun and interesting, and they just have such a great time doing it. I love that show so much. Not Fade Away, I know I've talked about this before. I think that's probably one of the best podcasts I've ever heard. For me, Not Fade Away is just, it's its such a departure from your other shows. And it, it's, it really, it showcases some of our most favorite legends, um, especially from the music industry. Just, I love it so much. So I hope folks will take time to subscribe to those shows, to give them a listen. If you're a fan of Twisted Philly, I know you're going to enjoy these shows too. So make sure you follow them on social media. Make sure you subscribe on whatever pod platform you use because I know you won't be disappointed. Oh, thank you so much. And I, you know how much I love you. You're and welcome. I, you know, I lived in PA I know. for a while. And I, and I turned on all my friends that have the Pennsylvania kind of background. said, you've got to listen to Twisted Philly because what you do is just incredible. And your voice is so much fun. I just love that. I just love your voice. And then it turns out that's oh, thank who you, you are. Like you and I are friends in real life. Like you are putting out there exactly who you are. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Margo's going to be back soon because we have another episode that we've been talking about doing together. I'm not going to tell anybody what it is, so it's a little bit of a surprise, but it's a little bit more history focused. You'll be hearing Margo's voice again in the near future. Yay. All right. Well, I guess we should do our little sign off as always. Thank you for listening. That's it from us. Ciao for now, Twisters.